everyone. Welcome to the My Nights Are Booked podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Beth Pollock, and today I have an interview with Henriette Lazaridis. She is the author of a new book called Terra Nova. It came out in December, and it is a riveting story that has so many twists and turns to it that uh, it's just, it's another one of those books. I'm telling you, these books, I, I love getting books in the mail because they are always just the best books to read. And I, I just can't say enough about this book. Um, if you remember my interview earlier, or let's, I guess it's last year now, um, I talked to author Erica Forensic, and she wrote a book called Girl in Ice. And um, there's something about books that take you into the ice, no matter where the ice is, the North Pole, the the South Pole is the case with uh, Terra Nova. Um, there's just there is just something about ice that's just terrifying. And this is a story. It's set in, in 1910, and there are two Antarctic explorers, Watts and Haywood. They're on a, an adventure to get to the North or to the South Pole. Excuse me. They're in, in the South Pole. It's um, basically unexplored. They're going to plant their flag for for England, and they're racing against time and against the elements uh, so that they can get there first. And, you know, it, it's 1910, so whatever they have with them is what they have to survive. And you can just imagine all of the things that they encounter um, to make this journey possible. Now, back at home... Uh, Haywood's wife, Viola, is kind of in, in the middle of an adventure herself. She is a photographer, and instead of resting on her laurels as a member of, of England's high society, because her husband is a very famous adventurer, she is trying to chronicle the women's suffrage movement and take pictures so that people know what's going on in the middle of, of the movement and with the, the prisoners who are being taken and, and being held with, you know, the, the, they go on hunger strikes. And so she's trying to capture this, capture the, the mood. And interestingly enough, she, her, so her husband is on this expedition. So Haywood is on this expedition and James Watts is her one-time lover and she cares very deeply for both of these men. So they're both, you know, putting themselves at great risk. The reason that Watts is on this journey is because he too is a photographer and Haywood really wants to capture this moment properly when he plants the flag. So he's brought a photographer with him and through the course of the journey, they discover a lot about themselves and, and, you know, their mutual relationship with Viola. And that leads to some tension. And then Viola's back in, in England trying to, uh, you know, trying to do something, but it, it doesn't quite go the way she thinks it is and the way she wants it to. So both of these stories are kind of going along and um, some things happen. There are some events that, that happen that are very questionable. And once, you know, once they happen, they kind of set this, this whole situation into motion. There are always consequences for these kinds of, of situations. And so Viola has some consequences. Uh, Watson Haywood has some consequences. There's just, there's a lot of pieces. Um, so I was really excited to be able to talk to Henriette and, and get some ideas of um, kind of where she was at, why she was inspired to write the story, how she came up with these things. One of the things that, that really jumped out to me as, uh, as I was reading the book is that she could have picked any one of these, these subjects and written about it, but instead she grouped several subjects together. And that's what makes it such a, a deep and vibrant story. And, I think it's 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 one of those books that um, I mean, especially because it's winter time. So if you're if you're snowed in somewhere, or if it's going to be a, a cold weekend, this is the perfect story to read. But it really makes you think. It, it it gets you thinking, and it really puts into perspective, you know, not only just the the things that people did at a time when there were so many firsts. You know, the first person to to go to the moon, you know, that was, that was a big first, you know, going to the South pole, 
was a huge, huge deal. And as we talk about in the interview, which is you know something that I find so fascinating, is that really there's not much that separates going to the South Pole now from when they were going there in 1910. If you have equipment failure or if something catastrophic happens, you're basically going to have the same experience that these two had in 1910. And that's what's really, really fascinating to me. So, you know, the depth of her research and you'll hear her passion for this story and I'm not going to spoil it. She is going to tell you why she's so passionate about this, this South pole exploration story. And it's, it's just, it's so fascinating to me how, how something can happen in your past and your childhood that, that kind of stays with you and leads you to do things as an adult. So, um, so yeah, so that's kind of where the story comes from. I really hope you enjoy this interview. It was one that was just so much fun for me to do. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, you know, again, you're not going to get any spoilers. So we, we kept it very spoiler free. Um, so if you have read the book, it's going to enhance your appreciation of it. If you haven't read the book, it's going to give you some perspective as you're reading it. So doesn't matter if you've read it or not, you're going to get something out of the interview. So please enjoy my interview with Henriette Lazaridis. All right, everyone. Today, I am so excited to welcome Henriette Lazaridis to my podcast. We're going to be talking about her new book, Terra Nova. And um, Henriette is the author of The Clover House. And her new book is inspired by um, an actual explorer who went down to the South Pole and uh, the turn of the 19th or the 20th century. And um, it's a fascinating story. And I'm really, really excited to be able to talk with her today because this is another book that had me on the edge of my seat. And um, it deals with ice. There's lots of ice. And if you go back and listen to my podcast episode with um, with Erica Forensic, her her book also dealt with ice. We're talking about the the terror of of ice and the reality of just how scary a landscape it is. And this landscape comes to life beautifully in Terra Nova. So, Henriette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Sarah Beth. I'm so happy to be here. This is you know it's it's always a pleasure being able to talk to authors and and kind of pick their brains about these stories because you have an amazing you have so many different elements in this story that you could have just taken one and made it into a, a novel in itself but instead you mix in there's so many different themes and and stories that are, are going on amid some really exciting events I mean this is a really exciting time so I'm just I'm so excited to talk with you and to get into uh into how you came up with this story well so um it's i feel like it's a it's a bit unique for me i will never have a story for or a novel for which this the origin story is so clear to me i really don't think that i ever will because really quite honestly this concept got stuck in my head when i was seven years old and i saw a documentary that my parents were watching on I, w I used to think it was PBS, but I think I tracked it down and it, it, it was like regular television. There was an adventure series and it was about Robert Falcon Scott, who raced Roald Amundsen to be first of the South Pole in 1912. And it was really the documentary was about Scott. And I was sitting there, a kid who loved to play in the snow, who was an only child, active imagination, watching this documentary about this man who was very heroic, doing something very, very difficult and being very stoic about it in the snow with the dogs and this was kind of whenever i played in the snow i kind of imagined myself to be an, an explorer an adventurer and so at the age of seven i became really fascinated with scott and i don't clearly i didn't know at that age the nuances of his poor decisions his leadership slips uh the, the complications of how roald amundsen actually kind of cheated by telling Scott he wasn't going to the South Pole and then sneakily changing direction and being like, haha, I have 11 days ahead of you now and I'm racing you for the South Pole. I didn't know all of that, but I knew that Scott was this interesting heroic person. And when we got a golden retriever a few months later, 
I said I would name him Scotty if he liked the snow. But of course, we got him in October, so I named him Scotty, and he did like the snow. But so I come by this fascination with Scott pretty honestly uh, from childhood, and it stayed with me my whole adult life uh, with me constantly thinking, is it possible to go to Antarctica? Could I ever go to Antarctica? Back when nobody ever, you didn't go. Um, and, and as I got older, like the, my fascination changed and shifted. And at some point, I mean, this is a long answer, but I'm getting there. At some point, I started thinking about that moment when Scott had gone all that way, suffered, you know, were there starving, they're freezing. And he's gone all that way. And he sees Roald Amundsen's flag in the snow and he knows he's been beaten. And I just, I still, every time I say that, every time I tell that story of me wondering about it, it's like I'm wondering for the first time. I never, it never gets old for me. What, what could that have felt like? You come all that way and, and in the middle of nothing, like whiteness all around, a human object, a flag that tells you that you failed at your goal. And I kept thinking about that and decided that I had to invent these characters who were gonna face that moment and react not the way Scott had done, but in some more morally complicated way. <laughs> and that's how I got started with James Watts and Edward Haywood. Um, there's more I can say, but I, I, I don't wanna just monopolize, so. Well, no, I mean, that's, it's such a, it's such a fascinating origin story because as a child, you don't understand the nuances. You understand the adventure. You understand, you know, to some extent, the magnitude of what, what Scott had done, but it's hard to grasp the nuance of, of what that mission meant at that particular time, going there in 1912 you know, around that time, you know, you think of, of great explorers, like, you know, the ones, the explorers were going down into uh, the Egyptian pyramids and discovering Tut's tomb. And it's a very different kind of exploration. You know, you think of like Indiana Jones and you think of those stories. Yeah. They're not in the middle of Antarctica. That's the kind of, you know, that, that piece that that's hard to grasp, even, you know, even to me as an adult today. Oh yeah. What it would take to do that. And, and even, the funny thing is, you know, so I'm, I'm a San Diegan and our, um, we have an all-star pitcher on the San Diego Padres baseball team. And he just went down to Antarctica oh. as part of a fundraiser for challenged athletes. And he wanted to be the first, uh, the first pitcher to throw a pitch on at Antarctica. <laughs> and he was, he was documenting his journey and there were, you know, there were challenged athletes on the, on the trip with him. And even by modern day standards, the, the pictures he was sending back of, of the waves and the, you know, the, 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 it, it was treacherous. I mean, it was actually very risky for him to do it mm. by modern standards. So to think of what they were doing at that time, it's just, it's really mind boggling and so difficult to grasp that whatever you have with you is what you have. There's no radios. There's no way to, to call for help. You're, you're right. on your own. Yeah. And then yeah. to arrive at that moment and then see, see someone else's flag is just, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really interested in, I mean, it makes me admire Scott even more mm -hmm. because he saw the flag and you can read in his journals, he was a very good writer and, and wrote tons. Um, and he says something very noble and very stoic about it. And I think he says, oh, I'll write a note to congratulate King Hakon of, of Norway. Um, and he pretty much turns around and starts heading home. And it's on the way home that his group, there were five of them who made it to the pole and on the way home, they they all perish. Um, and he, even then, he keeps writing these really noble letters. Uh, and, and so that continues to really fascinate me and earn my admiration every time I think about it. And I, it's not that I don't admire and enjoy the fictional characters that I invented, but Scott, People have written fiction based on Scott, but it wasn't going to satisfy my questions because I, I, I needed to invent something out of whole cloth to examine the kinds of questions that, that were, I mean, he would have been an interesting character to write a novel about, but the specific questions that I wanted to raise weren't going to come from his story. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's a great segue because I would love to talk a little bit about your characters and the story that you created 
and the, the, the world that you built with these characters to be able to tell that story because we know a little bit if you read the jacket cover of the book it, you you get a sense of, of you know that there's there's an explorer there's his wife there's the photographer that, that accompanies him on this trip but could you talk a little bit about kind of who these characters are how they're connected and the world that they're occupying in that moment when the book takes place well, I was really interested as I thought about this, because I thought about it, it was in the back of my mind for probably years. And then finally I said, oh, I have to write this book now. It's time. Um, and, and the way I always thought about it was I needed to have two people and I wanted them to be connected in a way that was really, that they were making each other, they were creating each other as they were going toward the pole, that they're so dependent, sure, for their survival, but also Edward Haywood, who is the expedition leader, he needs James Watts, who is the photographer, because sure, Haywood can run a camera, but Watts is going to make him look like the hero he wants to be. Watts is going to create those images that they'll take back to London and, and show at all their talks and they'll make money and Haywood will look like a hero. So Watts is really creating him. But then Haywood is also creating Watts because without Haywood as his subject and without Antarctica as his subject, Watts will be just another good photographer, but nothing really special. So I wanted to give them this history too, that they've climbed together. So they've depended on each other because they've been tethered literally with a rope. And now they're tethered in this much more figurative way, but still an existential kind of way. So I, I, I set about to create these two people who had were very different from each other, but sort of, you know, couldn't live with you, couldn't live without you kind of thing. And as I thought about it, I was like, well, okay, but am I really going to write a novel in which two men go to the South Pole, do something problematic, which I didn't even know at that point what it would be, and then come back or not? And that didn't seem enough. I, I needed a third piece. There needed to be the third leg of the triangle to paradoxically destabilize the triangle you know if you just have two they're they're balanced but i needed a third and so i introduced viola um as the sort of the hinge between the two men i mean in a character certainly in her own right she carries most of the novel um and i named her viola after viola in twelfth night and I had a bottle of wine on my desk for a long time that was like the label was like Twelfth Night Wine or something. And it was like my Viola wine. Um, <laughs> uh, it was empty. The bottle was empty. Um, but, but so I had her in this and you learn very early on that she has she is the wife of Haywood, but she has had an affair or she she's been in a relationship with Watts, which broke off when she married Haywood, but then has picked up again. So she's in love with both of them. And I, I also, I thought, oh, huh, I have a choice here. I can make her be the person who's having an affair and that's bad, even in her own eyes. Or I could make her be a character who legitimately loves both these men and kind of wants to continue to love both these men. So I went in that direction with her. Um, and and I, I you know that was interesting to me to create somebody who is trying, although she even feels so embarrassed about it that or so shameful about it that she doesn't she doesn't tell the truth until she has to, but in her mind she's thinking no no I can have a, a romance you know I, I can be in love with two men mm -hmm. at the same time, um, so she's trying to be sort of. Well, she's not trying to be anything except love these two men, but but in in her context, that's pretty unusual. Um, and so there were my three characters, and I also, it's funny, you don't always have these sort of literary analogies in your mind when you're writing a novel, but for some reason, I really had in my mind Frankenstein and the Odyssey and a couple other things too, you know, Shakespeare with, with the Twelfth Night thing, and they were these models in my mind. Um, in Frankenstein, you know, Victor Frankenstein is chasing the monster, but the monster is also kind of chasing him. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as a parallel for my Watts and Haywood. But then I also thought of them as, you know, they're the explorers like Odysseus who go away, but they leave behind their Penelope. So my, my Viola is a little bit of a twist on Penelope who stays at home while Odysseus is having all his adventures on his way home. And if you remember the story or you know the story, she weaves a tapestry all every day. And 
there are all these suitors who want to marry her. And she keeps saying, okay, when I finish my tapestry, I'll marry one of you. And every night she unravels the tapestry that she wove during the day. And I, I was, re I'm really interested in that idea of like, there's the woman who's left behind quote unquote, but she's making art and she's finding a way to sort of find new independence and new power even while the men are away and and doing sort of heroic things so those are all the things that were kind of swirling around in my mind and and then i set them in i literally set them in motion with the two men going off running out of food um, those were the first words i wrote of the book <laughs> soon they will have to send tight and lawrence back so and and again it just what's so fascinating is that watching her watching viola cope with the idea that you know both of these men that she loves are off on this journey together knowing that she harbors the secret that they don't know hmm. and you know the, all of the uncertainty but you know just really that the danger that both of these men face is just it, it's so hard because, because again you have to think back to that that time period it's not like she can post a letter it's not like she can Right. And she can, there, there's, there's ways of sending word, but things have to have, you know, you have to get close enough to be able to send a letter to, you know, another country. You exactly. can't get, there's no way to communicate. So for a long time, she's just in this, this bubble wondering, but at the same time, she can't let her life stop. So she finds ways to occupy her time. And mm -hmm. That's it, and I, what I loved is that that's her connection to uh, to Watts is that you know they both have this photography connection, and um, not only is it such a, a it's a very progressive idea to have her in love with both of these men at the same time, and you know I don't want to say be okay with it because she she does struggle with it, but she's yeah, also she very, does she she struggles with it, but she's also you know, she, she doesn't want to not be in love with both of them. You know, it, mm -hmm. it's such a hard thing for her, um, which is, is very progressive, mm. but she's also a photographer and she's taking pictures for the newspaper and she's trying to help because she's right in the middle of the women's suffrage movement. And that just, it's so, it's, it's such an interesting place for a woman to be period, but mm. for her to be trying to, to, to find a way to help she has the ability to have images of the movement in the newspaper. You know, she, she has ways of, of being part of how these things are being reported. And then she's also got this whole thing, you know, in her personal life. I mean, she's such a fascinating layered character to have all of these things in the balance while also not knowing if these two men are alive or dead. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a terrible position for her to be in, for anybody to be in. And I think about, I mean, we have this in, in our present day when, except you can communicate with people, but we were just watching a documentary last night, my husband and I about, um, it was an older film about somebody who um, died on the way down from Everest. Actually, I don't, yeah, he died on the way down. And so we were watching this documentary and of course these people are in incredible danger, but they're also being watched by high power tel telescopes. So they can, the people in base camp can see their every move and they can radio down and stuff like that. But so the the peril is still there obviously the world is still physically mountains and ice and all that are still just as dangerous but we have this weird we don't have that delay in communication anymore but she's really she has no idea she goes to that party that her friend has and everyone's saying oh what are you hearing and she doesn't know they could be dead right then they could already be dead yeah which i think that's to me that's a very interesting thing to think about and then when you like thinking about photography, which captures the image in the moment. But then when you look at a photograph later, you're sort of seeing a moment come to life, but it's already preserved. It's already sort of, when we look at old photographs, we're looking into, into the instant of, of a moment that's, you know, 50, 100, 150 years ago. And there's that weird thing that photography does for us that is in the novel in some way too. Mm -hmm. And one of the, what I love is the way that you utilize her photography and, and without, we're not going to spoil, you know, we're not going to spoil this, but I think what's really fascinating is that she has this secret and then her husband has a secret that she probably would never know if not for the fact that she's a photographer. 
And so, you know, he comes back, he's, he's discovered things on this trip. And so he's got things to say because he's just spent all of this time with, with Watts and, and, and then he comes back and, and he's, so he thinks he's got something (laughs) and then she, and it's just, it's so fascinating to me because if not for that fact, things could turn out very different in the story. And, you know, it kind of leads to this whole snowball of, you know, what happens when you know, when you know things. And then, you know, as you say, like you can be, there's a noble way of doing things and there's a not so noble way of doing things. So what happens when you choose that, you know, regardless of the hows and the whys, because that we don't want to spoil the, you know, what, what happens in the story, but regardless of the hows and the whys, you can, you know, it's interesting to see how there's always going to be that snowball, no matter what, there's going to be the snowball effect of consequences, whether they're directly related and and other people know about it, or just things that weigh on your consciousness that you have to deal with. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's one of the, the, I, I think that each of the three characters kind of exhibits a different reaction to that complex of ideas of, you know, what the consequences of your decisions that might be questionable. And, um, you know, again, not to, not to ruin the story for anybody, but uh, look at Watts <laughs> is what I would tell the reader, like, look at Watts, look at what happens to Watts, um, how he thinks about things. To me, he's, um, I, he's almost my favorite character. I don't know, but I think he really, he really wrestles with some things. Hmm. And speaking of, of wrestling with things, it's, it's really clever, I think, because as you mentioned earlier, you actually start the book by talking about how they're, they're going to run out of food because again, mm-hmm. you you, know, you can only bring so much with you mm-hmm. and you calculate out I thought that was such a a clever detail is you know how many calories each man needs and you know if if you do this then there's this don't cry because if you cry or have any kind of bodily excretion for that matter you're going to lose you know you're 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 going to lose things like you need to be very careful about every single move that you make while you're in this environment it's just so harsh and there's no um at least on this, and just to make, make sure I'm clear on this, there's no, there was nothing in between the journey from where they started to the pole, but on the way back, there were places for them to stop. Yeah. And so actually on the way there, they also, they lay these depots, which okay. I, I chose, you know, I didn't go into the depot laying very much. So this is, if you were to compare it to an actual um, you know, Scott's expedition or any expedition of Shackleton's or, or Amundsen's, the expeditions were in fact m- longer than my character's expedition because people would go down there for a couple of years and Scott went and did scientific research um, always. I mean, he did, he researched emperor penguins and they were, they were doing geological research. They really were doing a ton of scientific research all the way along, even on the way to the pole. Um, and as they were spending all this time, even wintering over during the long Antarctic night, they would go part way and lay depots and then, you know, go from that depot out and lay another one. Um, I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the depots. So you sort of pick up my characters in the beginning of the book after the closest depot to the pole, which they hit on the way back. Okay. But but that's a long way of answering your question was like, in theory, they would have been able to get from depot to depot to depot without dying of starvation. But all it takes is someone gets sick and can't pull as much or they have to go too fast or the weather pins them for a day and now they have to eat more. Um, And also, and we know this from the historical records they miscalculated back in 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 the time of watson haywood in the time of scott in reality they miscalculated what you needed so they were always even the best planned expeditions they were starving so just a matter of time really because there wasn't i mean you were you were literally stuck with whatever you brought it wasn't like you could go hunt and you couldn't go gather food there was no there was nothing gathered at that point just what what you had yeah 
at the shore there were you know there were penguins and seals and things like that but once and birds but once you get away from the shore there's no life in antarctica i mean i say this as though i've been 17 times i have not i was supposed to go last year but the pandemic changed things so i'm going next year <laughs> but um but I, as someone who's been reading about antarctica since i was seven um there's i feel like i can i can report things with great authority <laughs> But they, but and, and and again, it just it just it really highlights the sense of you know the reliance that these two men had on each other, because in that opening chapter, there's a there's there's several pieces to this to their story because again, it vacillates between their story and Viola's story, you know, back home and and there's a few moments where I'm like, oh God, no, they're going to have to do something here. They're going to have to make a really tough decision. Like, oh no, because you know we're all you know, whenever there's a decision that has to be made and obviously they have sled teams and there's, you know, there's other men with, you know, as you say, injuries and things that happen. And it's so, it's just, again, it, it's so fascinating because these two men, like as not, have to rely on each other because there's no doing it on your own. I mean, you probably right. could, but really shouldn't in this circumstance. Yeah. And even, I, I, there's, a, there's a really interesting part where they're, you know, they were talking about, how, um, you know, they could take a picture of them, you know, like you could take a picture of yourself. It was conceivable and possible that you could take a picture once you got there, but it wouldn't be, as you say, the picture that, you know, that, that Haywood would want mm -hmm. to celebrate this momentous occasion. And so he needed somebody else there, even though, you know, if push came to shove, he could carry on if he needed to. Mm -hmm. And that just kind of complicates things because again, as the further they go, the less they like each other. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> so right. <laughs> you have to be stuck with someone. I mean, you know, it, it, it starts to kind of turn out like Lewis and Clark, where you're like, okay, well, I could starve or I could eat you, but <laughs> you know, I'd rather keep you here to take my picture at least. <laughs> right. And then add to that the fact that every picture that they that Watts takes is a plate of glass, which he has carried from the shore this whole supply of, of glass plate negatives. And so he, at some point, obviously he can send some back as he's, as they're going along, but once they reach the final stage and they're on the last leg and they're making their way to the pole, every picture he takes, he has to carry with him as a physical object. And I will say that I took a little bit of poetic license with this because at the time he could have used film. There was, celluloid film available. Um, it would have been tricky, but I mean, he, he could have shot everything on film. The better photographs would be taken on glass plate negative, because if you've done any photography, it's like doing a contact sheet where the negative is the same size as the as the image you're going to print. You're, you don't, you're not putting it in an enlarger um, to, to, to zoom it onto the paper. You're just sticking the glass plate negative right on the paper. And so the clarity is incredible. I had the really great experience of talking to a gentleman named Fred Mirliani, who runs a little tiny photographic history center in East Cambridge. And back when I was one, when I was in the middle of writing Terra Nova, I found him. And he explained to me sort of how the cameras worked and how glass plate negatives worked. And he showed he had glass plate negatives wow. that I held in my hand. And I mean, they're not that uncommon, but it was really super cool to see the negative and then see the print and, and see how clear the image is. And so I've created, Watts has taken on this additional burden of the weight of these plates because he wants that perfect image. So every time he takes a picture of Haywood looking heroic, there it goes in the sledge. They've got to carry that too. I mean, it was in the sledge before he took the picture and now it's still in the sledge and he's got to get it back or else it's, there's no proof. Right. Right. And, and again, that's what that connection that, that James, uh, James Watts has with Viola because she's back at home taking her own pictures and, and understands the importance of all of these things and ends up being, the one who develops these pictures because she's she has the knowledge and, and is doing it herself and I think that's so clever that that um you know that that 
that was the choice that you made to have, you know, to have the glass and to have it, you know, in that, that way, because she's, she's doing that herself. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing to think they're mirrored in different parts of the world that, you know, that both of these people are doing kind of the same thing in, in, in Viola, to be fair, is going through some challenging times herself because she's in the, she puts herself, she's very, um, again, very progressive for a woman in that time going and getting into the middle of things for the sake of being able to tell the story, which I thought was a really, uh, a really great addition to her character because instead of being the, you know, she could have been the state, you know, the wife at home, she lives a life of comfort. Her husband's an explorer. She's basically a celebrity, but instead she's not resting on her laurels. And in fact, she actually uses her maiden name so she can keep her, you know, keep doing what she's doing while he's, while he's away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I wanted her to, I mean, she's, she's comfortable, but she's also really chafing at, she wants to be ambitious too. Like she's climbed and hiked with, um, with Edward and with James, but there, and so she's, she's capable, but there's always sort of society places a limit. There's a limit to how much exploring a woman can do. There's a limit to how high she can go, even, and though there were plenty of, well, not plenty, but there were many women who were avid hikers and climbers at that time but the highest heights didn't typically uh women didn't typically get to go there um so she's sort of chafing at this this desire to do something big and do something ambitious but she's home and as you say yeah she's she's putting herself in the middle of things um and and claiming independence originally i had her um i had trouble writing viola and the first time through i had her be adjacent to the suffrage movement but not she her photography project had nothing to do with the suffrage movement it was a different project altogether it didn't really work it just was it felt tacked on it wasn't organic with the story and with her character and the second time through i had her involved in the suffrage movement but there was still a piece missing and then in in another revision i was like wait a second I had written a note to myself a long time ago, like, what about the suffrage movement and the hunger strikers? And then I was like, nah, I don't know. But that was where she needed to be. She needed to be involved in the suffrage movement in this very physical way where she's not a hunger striker, but she's photographing. I think that that's, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. She's yeah. photographing hunger strikers. And so she's getting as close to the extremities of protesting for independence she's getting as close to that as she can um, without actually physically doing it herself like as a photographer she's getting as close as she can which what i found so interesting about that is that in doing so she puts herself at great peril because this is this is not something that's widely accepted at this time so even though these women are doing something that's very courageous and, um, you know, very brave on behalf of the movement, mm -hmm. their lives are in danger. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're arrested and, and these things happen while they're in prison. And even when they're not in prison, they're still at risk. And so by extension, she's also putting herself at risk because she knows where they are. She knows what they've done. You know, she's putting them out in, in front and center. Mm -hmm. but what I what I thought was so clever about how you did that was that um she's also not in the middle like and, and I think that's a really a really interesting aspect of it because she is she is doing so much at least in her mind and, and I think I think in 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 the result I think it was very powerful you know what she was trying to do mm. but she was kind of forgetting that she wasn't part of that like she wasn't suffering the way everybody else was suffering because she still had this life that was not a life of suffering yeah and i really i wanted to i wanted to make her a complicated character in that way where she it's not straightforward for her um she and her ambition is an important part of this character, I, I wanted to create characters for all three of the characters where they're wrestling with, you know, what kind of limit 
if any, do I need to place on my ambition in the, in the, uh, in the face of the person I love or my own sense of safety or my um, adherence to authenticity or truth or fame, all those different things that I feel like hopefully I've set them kind of swirling around these characters. And, and the thing that they're all, they have in common as they push into this little swirl is that they're really ambitious and they're, they love each other in this sort of triangle thing, but they also are all rivals of each other too. So even for, and, and Viola, I don't know if her rivalry extends out of that triangle. And if there's a, if you could say that she's in a rivalry with the women of the suffrage movement in a way, I think she, she is a little bit. Yeah. I mean, she, she definitely, I mean, that was, that was something that kind of jumped out. So I, I was, I, majored in political science and history. So that time period is always something that I'm, I'm so fascinated by. Oh. Um, but it just, it, it's so striking because even, like even today, when you're, when you're talking to people who are at the forefront of, of protests, you know, and then they ask the question, you know, well, what are you doing? What's your, you know, you don't understand because you're not dealing with this, but you're trying to be on the forefront of, you know, documenting this or telling the story, but it's not your story because you didn't you're not part of this, even though, you know, she's a woman, so she is, but she's, you know, it's, it's, it's so complicated. And I think that's, that's what, uh, what I found to be so, so intriguing about how she made her decisions. And, you know, she, she genuinely wanted to do something that was just groundbreaking. Yeah. And, um, but what I also found to be uh, really, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting side note on Haywood's on who Haywood is because she knew that she could only do this because he wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, that's exactly what I, yes, she, she, her freedom is, is greater because he's gone and she mm -hmm. wants him to come home. She wants them both to come home, but she's also realizing that, Oh, while they're away, I can do things. Yeah. I can have my own voice. I can fight for the voices of all women and I can do my art. I can really push in this new direction. And then when he comes back, then that's another problem for her to wrestle with. Right, so she has that one shot, just like he has the one shot to claim the, the poll and, and she has one shot to, you know, to make her name. I mean, this 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 is the kind of, of, of project that once you do it, it changes everything. And- Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it was so, and, and so again, you know, knowing, um, you know, she, she kind of thinks about, you know, like the, that James would be so supportive that, you know, that Watts would be so supportive of this, this project. Yeah. And yet her husband probably wouldn't be, especially, you know, again, without, without spoiling some of the things, but it, the way she, um, she kind of puts the finishing touch on this, on this presentation <laughs> probably isn't going to be so happy about that, but you know, it's, uh, it also is the thing that kind of changes the tide of, of, of the, the whole project itself is, is how she finishes it. Yes. Yeah. She's like a little modern day Cindy Sherman or sorry, <laughs> old, old time, not the other way around old, old time, Cindy Sherman. Um, yeah. But that's, yeah, becomes problematic. Yeah. You know, I, I can't say enough. I, I, this story is just so there's so many different layers to it. And again, if you could have written, a single story about any one of these things and it would have been it would have been a great story but bringing them all together just makes it just just absolutely incredible and wow. um i do want to say one that in again without uh without spoiling it there is this one character that kind of presents herself i don't think it'll spoil it by saying herself but she does present herself throughout the story and i was so glad to see how her story ended <laughs> I know who you mean. <laughs> I'm being very careful about that because it was. Yes, so I know who. I know mind. exactly who, who you're talking about. <laughs> and so, and again, you know, just those details like that make this book so special because it shows just how much you were thinking about all of those details. To, you know, to even circle back and add, you know, add these things in as a reader. That's 
I would just appreciate it every single aspect of that because it just, it enhanced the storytelling. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes characters just kind of, you know, or, or you know, things will happen or characters will appear and then you never see them again. And you're like, okay, well, why, you know, what? And every character had this, this great conclusion and, or maybe not great, but like yeah. they had a conclusion. <laughs> and so, you, you know, at the end, you just feel like, wow, this is, it's one of those epic stories that, I mean, I, I could picture it in my head as, as a limited series or movie. I could totally see this coming to life. Would love to see it come to life because it's well, just, it's so compelling. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, we all, it's, it's this, it's this, it's the weird thing about books, isn't it? That we, the books we love the most, we almost, we love them by betraying them by saying, I love you so much. I want you to take a different shape altogether <laughs> and stop being a book. <laughs> I want you to be something else. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. I don't but know. But it's, it, I don't know that, I, you know, to be fair, I don't think that you could capture all of the nuance in a limited series or a movie, but I think it would really drive home this, just the, the landscape and what it, you know, because when you think of any great movie that features a trek into the Antarctic, yeah, you see what people look like, you know, I mean, even, even watching Vikings, sometimes you're like, wow, that was, that was harsh. That was, you know, that landscape yeah. is very unforgiving, Yeah, you know, so it just, I, I can, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. I'm, I'm always amazed looking at photographs from that time, from expeditions from that time. I'm amazed at what they wore. And I mean, they, they managed somehow to not freeze more than they, than they froze in mm -hmm. temperatures that were as low as 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit um, uh, on the polar trek. Um, and they're wearing, you know, they have a combination of seal skin, wool, cotton, waxed cotton, those kinds of things, but they don't have what we have. There's no down. Well, right. actually I'm saying that, but uh, they could have, but they didn't, they had fur, but they didn't, I, to my knowledge, the, these guys didn't use down, but anyway, you see them and, and, and you, you marvel how they survived at all in that environment. Yeah, so. it's, it's absolutely amazing and um what i love is just that it really shows the authenticity and and, and hearing your passion for the antarctic and for scott's <laughs> journey all of that just becomes it just you, you it it pours out onto the page and you can see how much research you've done and how much you know you know about this because it just it just shows and and just even you know going through the layers of clothing that you know there's these moments where they're you know, I mean, because I would imagine you would have to kind of think like, okay, I'm getting dressed, like what, what, and, and so to hear kind of the roll call of like, okay, did I put this on? I put this on, I put this on mm. and all of these layers, you know, and, and it's very, it's very organic. It's not something that's just a throwaway line. It's like, no, like, I mean, your brain's kind of frozen too. So like, if you forget, mm. you have to kind of jog your memory every time you do something, because pretty soon it's, you know, ex extreme heat and extreme cold tend to do that. You forget you start yeah. to forget things or, or may imagine things or, you know, did I eat? Did I, did I really eat? Are my teeth falling out? Did this happen? Did yeah. I, you know? Right. And meanwhile, and the hunger strikers are, are experiencing kind of similar mm -hmm. things as they're recovering from their striking and their force feeding and all the terrible things that they're going through. They're, they're all, they're in a London parlor in, in, okay, granted it's, it's January or February, but they're, they're freezing and they're sitting in front of the coal fire, but they're, they're so thin and so starved that they're freezing and their starvation is a different kind of starvation from what the men have gone through. Right. Right. And it's just chosen it. Or right. Both have chosen it, but. Right. And, and, and yet the men are seen as heroes and the women are seen as, you know, cast away, you know, basically criminals mm -hmm. for what they've gone through. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, I honestly, Henriette, this is, this is one of those stories that just stays with you. And it's, um, it's just been an absolute pleasure to read and, and to, to talk with you about it. Now I'm curious though, what do you follow up a story like this with? Do you have something, are you working on anything right now that's, uh, that where, where does your next adventure go? I, I am, I am working on something now. I also, I wrote a manuscript during the pandemic because didn't we all, um, <laughs> that was that is true. <laughs> yeah, completely different from this set in Athens. I think largely because 
I couldn't travel. My family lives, all my family's in Greece. And so I, I, I had to conjure this place that I couldn't access physically. But I'm, the thing I'm working on now is set in 1972. It's a, I guess that technically makes it a historical novel again, but it's set uh, essentially um, in the world I live in now, just a little bit west of here in a fictional suburb. And it's about a young physicist whose mother, um, young woman physicist who's 26 and her mother disappeared, um, leaving behind a sort of a bloody kitchen uh, when my character was 10. And so it's the book is about physics. It's about um, this cold case. It's those kinds of things. Love it. I love <laughs> it's it. very different. <laughs> but I mean, I love it. I, I think that's that I'm intrigued already. So I can't I cannot <laughs> wait for when that comes out. That is going to be we'll have to talk again because I, I want to hear all about it. Sounds good. That's a plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you for, for joining me on the podcast and, and talking about your wonderful book. Terra Nova is out now. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you haven't read it yet, I highly recommend it. And if you have read it, I think that if you're like me, you've learned a ton through this conversation. So thank you for, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been just so great to talk about the book and have a chat with you. It's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we'll, we'll leave this at to be continued because we're going to talk about your next book when it comes out. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Henriette. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I loved that conversation. It was so much fun chatting with Henriette. And this is such a special book. And uh, it's one of those books that it's one of those books that I could see coming to life and I would be on the edge of my seat the whole time. It's just, there's something about the, the adventure stories and the drama and then, you know, pitted against the, the backdrop of the women's suffrage movement and, and everything that was going on, you know, back home in England. So it's a fascinating story. Uh, Henriette is just such a wonderful person to talk to. So I can't thank her enough for joining me. And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this podcast. If uh, if you haven't left a review yet, please make sure you re review the podcast, whatever platform you listen to. Um, subscribe to the podcast. Send me comments. I would love to hear from you at Sarah Beth Pollock on both Twitter and Instagram. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us and we will talk very soon. Thank you so much.